to begin with this evening, I turn to John chapter 4. There will be several other scriptures I'll refer to this evening, but we're going to start with John chapter 4. I'll read here verses 1 through 26. This is a familiar passage to many of us probably, as it's the encounter of Jesus with the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. So this is God's holy word, as he inspired the Apostle John to write. So we will be hearing the word of the Lord now in John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well, and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for... You have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we... We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, am he. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. Let's pray. Lord, we pray indeed that you will bless the reading and the preaching of your word, that all who hear may be blessed also. Prepare our hearts to receive your word in faith, 
and in understanding that we might apply it well to our lives. As we consider the topic of worship this evening, we pray that we would be worshiping you rightly, that we might be seen truly to be servants of Jesus Christ, for we pray in his name. Amen. When in that passage we just read, Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman at the well. He said many things to her that are of great significance, and we don't have the time to go into all of that. I probably would break it into a few different sermons if I were preaching through John right now. But let's take note of John 4.23 this evening, where Jesus says, But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. That last phrase in the Greek literally directly translate as, it translates as, the, for the Father such seeks those worshiping him. In other words, the kind of person the Lord seeks is the same kind of person who worships him. Now, this, lest you think, would contradict what we were talking about in Sabbath school this morning and seem to say, well, yes, indeed, you must do some act of goodness first before God will reach down and bring you up into his kingdom. What we see here is we've already seen, clearly proved from Scripture, that no one seeks God unless God has already sought him out and changed his heart. No one will worship God, therefore, unless someone has already sought him, unless God has already sought him out, that is, and changed his heart. So one thing Jesus is saying here is that those who have been sought and found by God respond with worship, rather than to say that God is waiting for us to worship him rightly and then he will choose us. It's rather that those who have been sought by God are those who are worshiping him. For the Father such seeks those worshiping him. In our study of the topics covered in the Westminster Confession of Faith, we come this evening to the chapter entitled, Of Religious Worship and the Sabbath Day. Uh, We could spend months on that topic, on both of those topics, and I have preached on worship and Sabbath keeping before here, but someday I'll return to that. Um, But I'm going to break this chapter of the Westminster Confession into really two topics, two sermons here, one on worship and one on the Sabbath. And on the topic of worship, the Confession begins, The light of nature showeth that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is good and doth good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the might. So in other words, because God is God, we should worship him. And then the confession goes on in that first paragraph to say, but the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. So there are several things we could say about that, but there are two big things. One is, it's obvious that there is a creator. Nature itself demands that verdict. 
And as Romans 1 points out, uh, we are guilty if we do not recognize that there is a creator when we look at the creation. Those who deny that basic fact are fooling themselves. Their foolish hearts are darkened. And this is the condition of all of mankind unless God has shined his light into our hearts. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And then we can surmise that if it's true there's a creator and that's the verdict demanded by the creation we see around us, then he deserves to be worshipped. If we were to read all of Psalm 104, for example, I'm not going to read the whole psalm here, but we would see that Psalm 104 speaks of a, the God of creation and also the God who uh, subdued the, the waters of the flood and therefore should be worshipped. Well, we know that we should worship our Creator. That should be obvious to anyone who understands that there is a Creator. But then the question comes, how do we worship our Creator? That brings us to the second major point we see in this first part of this chapter of the Westminster Confession. The only acceptable way to worship God is the way He says to worship. Think of it this way. Christian worship is, spiritually speaking, entering into God's heavenly presence. Hebrews 12, 22 and 23 says, You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Particularly when we come to worship, we're assembling, as it were, in God's heavenly presence. Well, who determines how we enter heaven? God does. Do I have the right to come into your home whenever and however I please? Absolutely not. I can come at your invitation. I have no other right to come. Do you have the right to set the time and manner I would enter your home? Yes, you do. Or whether I do or not? Yes, absolutely. Think of John 14, 6, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Or when the Lord told Moses, take the shoes from off your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. God determines how we enter his presence. And so if God determines how we enter his presence, and Christian worship is entering into God's heavenly presence in a real sense, who determines how we are to worship? The only answer is God. God and God alone determines how we are to worship him. When you were a small child, perhaps you drew something for your mother. Maybe you used some crayons. and It wasn't very good by any objective artistic standards. It may have just been a few scribbles. But mom proudly displayed it on her refrigerator. Put it up there with a magnet. Sadly, that's how many people think of worship. They think that God should treat us like the little children and just be happy that we did anything for him and, and display it on his refrigerator, so to speak. Well, that may work with your mom when you're a little toddler. And certainly God is gracious to accept our meager good works 
as if they were truly good. But try that attitude with your college professor. You should just accept whatever I turn in. Give it an A. Your employer. Your customer. Just accept whatever I'm willing to to throw together for you. That's not going to get you very far. Read the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. This morning when Joel was preaching, we read from Genesis 3. If we read Genesis 4, the next chapter, we see a great tragedy coming about and the decline of mankind and deeper into sin thereafter, that first great sin following the fall, the first murder. It seems that it was all precipitated in the first place by Cain thinking, God should accept whatever I'm willing to give him. Whatever I have left over, Abel gives the first of his flock, Cain gives the fruit of the ground. The difference wasn't so much the offering as the attitude behind it, as we see. Because as we see in that chapter, it's that God has regard for Abel and his offering and does not have regard for Cain and his offering. So there's something different about their hearts, about their conditions before God. And that difference of heart is what prompted Cain simply to give what he didn't think he valued very much. That's not how worship works. Worship is a taste of heaven. It's training for eternity, for what we'll be doing in eternity in God's glorious presence. And who knows better what heaven's like? You or God? God knows. So let's trust Him. Deuteronomy 12, the Lord warns Israel before they enter the promised land, starting at verse 29 in Deuteronomy 12. I'm reading to the, through the end of the chapter, so 12, Deuteronomy 12, 29 through 32. When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess, and you displace them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abomination to the Lord which he hates they have done to their gods, for they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Now, we might stop there and note some people would say, well, see, that's all that's saying is God doesn't want you to, to commit human sacrifice for him and burn your sons and daughters. No, what it's saying is when man makes up his own way to worship, it always goes in the wrong direction. And in this case, it even went in that horrific direction. The concluding verse, verse 32, is really the principle here. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. So don't look to your own ideas. Don't look to pagan cultures to find out how to worship me, the Lord says. I'll tell you how to do it. Deuteronomy 4, 15 through 20. Speaks here of similar things which the Lord Moses tells the, the people take careful heed to yourselves for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire 
lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. And take heed lest you lift your eyes to heaven when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the host of heaven. You feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace out of Egypt to be his people, an inheritance as you are this day. There's a warning there against coming up with our own ways to worship God, particularly in this case by images of created things. 1 Timothy 4.1, Paul says that false teachings are doctrines of demons. In 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, he warns that pagan religions have, have their source in demons. Why would we look to those things as sources of how we should worship the Lord? Or look to our own fallen and deceitful hearts. The only true religion, the only proper way to worship the Lord must be revealed by the Lord. And of course, true worship must be directed to God alone then as we see the confession says in that regard religious worship is to be given to god the father son and holy ghost and to him alone not to angels saints or any other creature and since the fall not without a mediator nor in the mediation of any other but of christ alone so of course since we're fallen into sin we need a mediator we can't even we can't even enter god's presence without mediation having happened You can't read more than a page of the Bible and miss the principles spoken of in that short paragraph of the Westminster Confession. Colossians 2.18, Revelation 19.10 warn against worshiping angels and other servants of the Lord. We see in Colossians 2.18, as I turn there, which reads here, Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. And then in Revelation 19, verse 10, we see an angel has been speaking to the Apostle John, and even the Apostle here says, And I fell at his feet to worship him. The angel was glorious, and even John was tempted here. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Worship God and God alone. As we consider the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, the first two commandments or against worshiping other gods, or worshiping God in any manner other than he is prescribed. So Exodus 20, verses 2 through 6, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. 
I won't read them all, but John 5.23, John 14.6, which is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. First Timothy 2.5, all tell us that we can only approach God through Christ. First Timothy 2.5 says, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. John 5.23, Let me read verses 22 and 23. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So there's no way to worship the Lord apart from the mediation of the Son. So we see we we can only approach God as he determines and only through Christ. But how do we go about worship when we approach the Lord? So we know that we must only worship the true God. We've already established that we have to worship Him according to His standards. Well, what are those standards? We don't have the time to go through all of the defenses of what are the biblical elements of worship here tonight. But there are certain elements of worship that God has ordained in His Word. We should make the distinction between elements of worship and circumstances of worship. So, as we'll see here momentarily, God has ordained that we sing his psalms in worship. He hasn't told us what tunes to sing a particular psalm to. And so, we have to choose the two. Or Sometimes there might be some instructions in the Old Testament, in the caption, that tells the, the choir master what tune that might have been sung to, but... We don't know those tunes anymore, so we just have to choose an appropriate tune to sing to. We have to gather for worship on the Lord's Day, but we there's no appointment for in Scripture where in your particular community you need to gather. We have to choose a place to gather. Those are circumstances. What time we'll gather on the Lord's Day, those are circumstances. Uh, but the elements of worship, the actual acts of worship that we commit, those have to be things that are commanded by God. One is prayer, as the confession says. Prayer with thanksgiving, being one special part of religious worship, is by God required of all men, and that it may be accepted is it is to be made in the name of the Son, by the help of His Spirit, according to His will, with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance, and if vocal, in a known tongue. Well, that's at least one sermon right there if I were just going to preach about prayer. But we see here Philippians 4, 6, In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. Colossians 4, 2, Continue steadfastly in prayer. 1 John 16, or, or sorry, in John 16, 2 and 3, not 1 John. Uh, there aren't that many chapters in 1 John. Uh, in John 16, uh, 23, Jesus tells us to ask things of the Father in my name. As we saw recently in in 1 Corinthians, chapter 12, that prayers need to be understood by the congregation if they're vocal. So a prayer out loud in the public assembly needs to be in the common language, in in a known tongue. These prayers have to be for things acceptable to God. As the confession says, prayer is to be made for things lawful and for all sorts of men living or that shall live hereafter, but not for the dead, nor for those of whom it may be known that they have sinned the sin unto death. In uh, 1 
1 John 5.14 cautions us to ask according to God's will, and he will hear us, and then verse 16 speaks of a sin unto death. So here we'll read 1 John 5.14-16. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So we have to know that it's according to God's will. The things that we pray for, if we pray things that are against God's revealed will, we should not expect that prayer to be answered. Things that are unknown to us, we can pray for, and maybe God will say yes or no to those things. It goes on, and, and if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother sinning, a sin which does not lead to death... He will ask, and he will give him life for those who commit sin, not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. That in itself, of course, is at least one sermon there, but basically most most Bible scholars believe that's the sin leading to death is the same thing as the, the blasphemy of, of the Holy Spirit, the persistent unbelief. Um, basically, if we understand that somebody is... Uh, we don't know what's in somebody's heart... So it's hard for us to know that somebody is outside of salvation. But uh, there is a particular condition of somebody who we could say, hypothetically, there may be some time, as John tells us here, that we uh, may know somebody who shouldn't be prayed for in a particular circumstance. It's It's so hard to discern that that we should just say, well, let's just pray for everyone who's sinning so that they would not go on sinning. But Hebrews 9.27 tells us that if that it's appointed for man once to die and then comes judgment, that means prayer for the dead, of course, would contradict what God has told us happens after death. So we, the people who have died are beyond our prayers. Prayer for the dead comes from a superstition founded in the ideas of works, righteousness, and purgatory, which are both contrary to what the Bible teaches about salvation, so we must not pray for the dead. Another essential element of worship is the attendance to God's word. The reading of the scriptures with godly fear, the sound preaching and conscionable hearing of the word in obedience unto God with understanding, faith, and reverence, singing of psalms with grace in the heart, as also the due administration and worthy receiving of the sacraments instituted by Christ are all parts of the ordinary religious worship of God besides religious oaths and vows, solemn fastings, and thanksgiving upon special occasions, which are in their several times and seasons to be used in a holy and religious manner. So reading God's word, as we see happening throughout Acts, as people search the scriptures to learn of Jesus, and to preach him, uh, Jesus himself read the scriptures and pointed out how they related to him. Uh, preaching God's word, you know, 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word in season and out of season. Singing God's word by the singing of psalms. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. And we understand those terms all to be uh, understood by the original audience to mean the psalms of the Bible, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Showing uh, forth the word of God in the sacraments as we make disciples, baptizing them, as Jesus commanded in Matthew 28, 19, and showing the Lord's death till he returns in the Lord's Supper, as Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 11. And when appropriate, we may also take solemn oaths and vows. Deuteronomy 6, 16 tells us to swear by the name of the Lord when we swear. 
we'll deal with the matter of oaths and vows more deeply when we come to the, tran- the, to the chapter in the confession on that. We can hold fasts. Acts 14.23 is an example. And have thanksgivings and celebrations. Reactions to what God is doing for us on occasion. And since the coming of Christ, these are not confined to a temple or one particular central worship place, but rather they're to happen in our communities everywhere. As uh, I think Denny Pruto used to say that the theology of Christian worship is found pictured in the temple in the Old Covenant, but the practice of Christian worship was uh, comes from the synagogue, from the local community worship. So we see in the confession, neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is now under the gospel, either tied unto or made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed or toward which it is directed. You don't need to come to the church building to have your prayers heard. You don't need to face Jerusalem to have your prayers heard. But God is to be worshipped everywhere, the confession says, in spirit and in truth, just as we read in John 4 as in private families daily and in secret each one by himself, so more solemnly in the public assemblies which are not carelessly or willfully to be neglected or forsaken when God by his word or providence calls thereunto. That's what Jesus told the Samaritan woman. The time is coming and now is. Men everywhere will worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. The family, as Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 and 7, tells us is an appropriate place for worship. These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Privately as individuals, as as math as a Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 6, But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And of course, in public assemblies, as Hebrews 10.25 tells us not to neglect to meet together, to assemble together. There's no getting around it, skipping public worship of God is a sin unless we are providentially prevented. Whatever excuses we have, apart from physical inability, illness, those things which keep us away, God should be more important to us. We could get 10 or 12 sermons out of this topic easily, I have in the past, uh, but probably the most important lesson concerning worship is what we know well in the RP church as the regulative principle of worship. Some people will will uh, abbreviate it RPW. It doesn't mean Reformed Presbyterian worship. <laughs> it's, it's regulative principle of worship. God and God alone determines how we are to worship him. His principle of worship is regulatory. If he hasn't told us to do something, we're not to assume that we can do it. Anything else is idolatry. That does not mean that as some seem to think that worship is drudgery, that it's unjoyful, that it's a a task, and it's not a pleasure. It should be a pleasure. In fact, we should take great delight in the Lord, 
And so our time of worship on his terms should be a great delight to us. Because worship is when our Lord graciously allows us into his presence. He meets us in his covenant love. So worship the Lord. and Worship him by his standards he set forth in scripture. Well, let's pray. Lord, may our worship indeed be on your terms. May we know your presence as we worship in spirit and in truth. May we enter indeed into your heavenly places, into the assembly of the firstborn. We pray that you would grant that all that we do in worship might be according to your commands and to your glory, as well as to our edification. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.